just about everyone's wondered about the end of the world. And from a scriptural point of view, the end of the world is very simple. Um, it still can be a frightening thing. So we're going to look at today, what does the Bible teach about the end of the world and what is that going to look like and how in the end does that affect me? This sermon was originally recorded at Castle Rock Middle School, August 26, 2012. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Isn't that cool? I, that's one of my favorites. They, that's how they ended every seminary concert, if you sang in the seminary choir, which I did just to learn how to sing. I wasn't actually very good. And I, I've told you the story before, but they, they were going to go to Alaska, which cost a lot of money. They had to raise a lot of money and things like that to send the choir to Alaska. And I went, they had tryouts, actually, to make it on the send choir trip. And so I went to talk to, the guy's name was Professional Chiefle at the time. And I said, well, you know, I'm not very good. And he goes, yeah, but Jared, you don't sing loud. So he, he thought this was good. So that, I made the cut. Uh, he never had a tryout, and I got to go to Alaska and Seattle uh, and really enjoy it. So we are in the, the end of a series. This is the last of our weeks in this series that we're talking about. What does the Bible teach? And I think it's fitting if you're going to talk about the end of a series, you should talk about the end of the world. So that's what we're going to be doing today. What's coming up? Um, we don't know exactly. Usually I like to plan this out in June, but we had a couple other things going on, so we don't know exactly what's coming, but I don't think it's good to start a sermon series on Labor Day, so we didn't, and I don't think it's, uh, in two weeks is September 9th, I think is the Sunday, is that right? For some who know, um, that is only two days away from the day we celebrate. That would be um, September 11th in 2011 was the first day we had weekly services, so I think that's kind of a cool thing, and we should probably recognize that on some level. So that's as far as the plans go. I shouldn't say this out loud, um, but that's as far as the plan goes. We'll probably start a new series in conjunction with our grow groups. So we're hoping to have at least uh, four grow groups going this fall, and we'll probably start a new series with that starting in October. So those start up in October. You can sign up in September. We're excited about that. The end of the world. What is the, what's the difficulty in talking about the end of the world? Um, of all topics, this could turn into like a whole series of things. You could have one on heaven. You could have one on hell. You could have one what happens when you die. One what happens on judgment day. But I made a, a vow to myself that I would never talk about the end of the world more than one week in a row. And the reason was that, I probably told you this as well too, is when there's a thing called the pericope, which I've told you before, which is scheduled readings. At the end of the church year, three readings in a row and someone who looked ahead would have figured this out. Three readings in a row talk about the end of the world. So I'm a first-year preacher. I'm really excited. I'm like, end of the world. I've been waiting to do this. So I squeezed 10 minutes of knowledge into a 20-minute sermon, and I was ready. It was gorgeous and fantastic. And then I looked for the next week, and it was on the end of the world again. I'm like, are you kidding me? So then I preached whatever was left. You know, like the tank is empty. And I probably should have looked ahead one more time because then the next week it was the end of the world. And so now every end of the year, uh, church year, which is like November, I just don't preach on the end of the world. I just preach on a different topic. So we're going to do this, but here's the difficulty in trying to do this. I can either parade off a whole bunch of Bible passages and say, here's what's going to happen at the end of the world, which I think would be pretty difficult, I mean, for your mind to grab all these. Instead, I think this might be a little bit better. I'm going to talk about, from a Bible perspective, what is the end of the world like? And if it's my opinion, I'm going to be very clear to say, here's my opinion on this. And then I'll show you some of the highlights in Bible passages. If you've got questions about some of the things we're going to delve into just for a little bit, like the millennium, and if you don't know what the millennium is, you maybe I'll just make questions for you. Just shoot me an email or something like that, and we'll cover them. It's a little bit too difficult, I think, and your answers, uh, your questions won't be fully satisfied if we try and cover all of that today. So we're going to go big-time speed, and we're going to cover the end of the world. Uh, what usually happens when you die? 
you die. Okay, so we got that one out. That's good. So this happens to everyone. You've seen this happen to everyone. And the scriptures tell us a couple things. One is your body and your soul separate at death. So these, if these are new things to you, your body and soul are going to separate. If you run into someone who's dead, they're no longer there. Their body is there. They're now separated. Now, Scripture tells us also that you immediately face judgment at that point. Um, here would be the passage that we're going to look at. Here's our question. I don't know how to get away that fade. If anyone knows computer stuff, how to get, like, the, the shadow out of the text. It doesn't show it. But um, just as man is destined to die once and after that to face judgment. So Scripture is very clear to say when you die, and there's other passages, when you die, you immediately face judgment. And how long is this judgment for? Eternity. Which is why I think, so we're going to just talk on uh, side issues, why I think other people have come up with other ideas to try and um, make this so that it's not so final. Does anyone like that idea that when you die, there's judgment and it's eternal? Only if you're a believer and you know you're going to heaven. Then you're like cool with it because you don't want like a 10-year review process when you're in heaven. You're like, wait a second, this, this, I didn't get into that. So we're okay with that if you're going the right place. But what about all the people you know? Is there anybody here who does not know someone who's not a believer? Of course not. Everybody knows someone who is not a believer. And just think about the last day as you look forward to it. What is it going to be like when people you like, your favorite neighbor or relatives are there and facing final judgment? I think it's terrible. I mean, I'm not excited about that. So there's a couple ideas that I want to just touch on that people have come up with to try and ease that idea of finality of it. Um, one is purgatory. Have you heard of purgatory? So purgatory is a common idea. It's been around actually before. The, the idea of it has been around since even before Jesus. And this would be in other religions. So if you have ever met someone who's Hindu, what do they teach? They teach reincarnation. That's kind of the same idea. They want to give people a second chance. So if you're a dirtbag in this life, your life's not going to be better in the next life, but at least you got a chance to kind of work your way up, right? That's appealing. I think it is. Or if you, um, purgatory is the idea that when you die, if you haven't quite made the cut, and I'm making it a little bit simplistic, you haven't quite made the cut, you're going to have a chance to be refined while in kind of this limboy area until you're ready to, to enter heaven. What is the appeal of that? You get a second chance. I think that's gorgeous. Who doesn't like second chances? Anyone follow sports? A couple. A couple follow sports. We, uh, how many players do you know that you could name just off the top of your head if you follow sports at all that take PEDs, performance-enhancing drugs? They've taken them. Are you ready to kick them out of the league? A lot of us as Americans like the idea of a second chance and getting another shot at it. You're like, not, some of them you're ready to kick out of the league. I know that. But, but some you're like, oh, if they play for the other team, you're like, this guy should be gone forever. But most of the time, you're like, a second chance is good. What about at work? How would you feel if you went to work and the first time you were late, they're like, sorry, you're canned? You're like, what? You know, I, if there was a car accident or whatever usual excuse you have, you kind of have the thing, I haven't used car accident, my kids uh, are sick or something like that. So you get there. What would you feel like if they didn't even give you a second chance at work? It would stink. So this idea of a second chance with God, I think, makes some sense. It's got a human emotion to it. It's got an appeal to it. But is it biblical? The closest thing I could came, come to, I ran into a person who taught it, and I was asking him, like, where, you know, what do you do with um, the passage where Jesus is on the cross? You know, the situation, he's on the cross, and he, he, um, the, they're mocking him. The two guys on either side are mocking him, and then the one looks at him and says, hey, we've got to stop this. This guy hasn't done anything wrong. 
And then Jesus says this memorable line in Luke 23. He says, today, I tell you the truth, today you will be with me in paradise. And isn't that a great relief for anyone who, like at the last moment, suddenly believes in Jesus? I think it is. You know what he explained to me? He said the comma's in the wrong spot. So Jesus is really saying, I tell you the truth today, comma, you will be with me in paradise. So he's saying, like, eventually, I'm telling you the truth now. Eventually, you're going to be with me in paradise. Is there any kind of comfort for that? And if I was on the cross, I'd be like, oh, hold on, just to clarify, you know, just, where, where did you put the comma? I mean, just so I, are you tell me the truth today, or am I going to be with you today, or, you know, do I plan to do? No, instead, there's comfort, right? Because Jesus says, today, you're going to be with me in paradise. So I see the appeal of it. A second place this happens, and I don't know if you're as familiar with a millennial teaching. All right, if you're not, uh, just buckle your seatbelts, and we'll cover it fairly fast. The millennial teaching teaches this. Um, and it's based off of a couple passages. One in Thessalonians that said Jesus is going to come in the clouds and rapture, capture. That's a biblical term um, from the Vulgate. So they're going to capture up the believers. They're going to be up in heaven, uh, in the clouds with Jesus. And then um, they, they coupled that with passages that are in Revelation chapter 20. And Revelation chapter 20 talks about the thousand years reign of the saints. So is everyone with me so far? Okay, we've only got two spots so far. So read Revelation 20. And see if it's literally talking about, all the things are literal. You read the first two verses, and it's talking about picture language. The same thing with this thousand years. You're still with me. The, the millennium teaches this, that when Jesus comes in the clouds, he's going to scoop up all the believers, and then um, eventually take them to heaven, and he is going to reign on earth for a thousand years. The only differences in millennial teaching is where is the tribulation going to come? So they have terms like post-trib, mid-trib, um, pre-trib, but we won't get into deals like that. However, what does Jesus say as he's talking to Pilate? Pilate's trying to figure out if he's a king, and what does Jesus say to him? He says, my kingdom is not of this world. I think, at least in my own opinion, what the appeal of something like that is, of believers leaving and you only have unbelievers giving a second chance to try and believe. They've got a thousand years to try and believe in Christ. Do I, do I feel for that? Do I like that idea? I think that'd be awesome. I think it'd be great if Jesus showed up here and he's like, okay, we're going to be taken off in like 30 minutes. You guys are like, hey, that's Jesus. He's real. Yes, I'm real. And I died. Look at the scars. I mean, wouldn't this be fantastic if people could get a second chance and the final judgment was not final? I think so. But I think it fits into the same category as reincarnation, the same category as purgatory, the same category as the millennium, which is this idea that we want to give people a second chance when Scripture's quite clear. I actually asked a guy in this particular passage, I know it's hard to read. Um, I said, well, what about Hebrews? Because I ran into a guy at our old church, so I won't get into the deals with it. Um, we rented a church from another church before we bought it from them. So one of the, per, uh, the elders at the church I got in a conversation with. I said, well, how do you explain this then? So Christ was sacrificed once to take away the sins of many people, and he will repeat a second time, not to bear sin, but to bring salvation to those who are waiting for him. So I mean, the Bible never talks about Jesus' third appearance or anything like that. It's like first appearance and then end of the world's second appearance, right? And then I said, he's coming in the clouds, right? And he goes, exactly. I said, exactly what? And he goes, when he comes in the clouds, he's not touching the earth. So his way to explain it to me was that because Jesus was in the clouds and his feet never touched the ground, it doesn't really count. It, it, I don't know. 
and then we were done. You know, like, I'm like, I don't know where to go. If this is the line of argument that we're going to have, like Jesus doesn't, I, I'm thinking he guts down into atmosphere. We're going to call that, a, that's an appearance. That's what I'm going to call it. Um, he doesn't actually have to land and like, and good. Now, okay, Jesus is really here. Jesus, he's like floating down. We're like, no, 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 hold, hold. And now he touches. Now we have to worry the end of the world's coming. Otherwise, it's just like an appearance or something. Why do I bring this up? Because uh, Scripture is very, very clear to explain that when you die, your body and soul separate, you're going to face judgment, and that judgment is eternal. It's lasting. It's not something you, can, you get a second chance at. He said, this is it. This is your time. So the Bible describes two places that you go to, heaven and hell. And do you know where we get the idea of hell from? This is kind of a popular idea. A guy named Rob Bell is now saying that there's no hell. He's on the East Coast. I think it's Rob Bell. On the East Coast, he's a pastor. Um, we ran an article I read in the Missoulian, which is in Missoula, called Where the Hell is Hell? You know what the problem is? Have you ever read scripture and found the word hell? You actually can. But, but most of those are translations of other terms. So our idea of hell, so we're going to just go on a little walk with hell now for a second. And, and it's going to feel like, but um, so hell has is collective ideas. So whenever you have a teaching in Bible, rarely it, that I can think of, the Bible has a glossary. So it's not like a hot link. What is it called? Hot link is a sausage. What is it called when you like touch it in a book and it takes you to a place online? Is that a hot link? Is it really? Okay. Um, so you t- now I'm going to smile every time. I just picture this little hot link right there. So you, you touch the hot link and then do you have any place in scripture where it does that for you? Like, if you want to know about hell, you just hit, like, hell, and then it goes, bam, here's the exact definition right from God, what hell is. Or to find out what things they're talking about, you have to collectively gather all kinds of the teachings and put them into one idea. Most of the time, it's like a net, and you're gathering all the teachings about it, and you're trying to squeeze it into one idea. So the hell, when we read about hell, has a number of ideas. Uh, Number one, it is a place of suffering. So there's torment. There's a fiery lake of sulfur. When they describe it, one of the words they talk about is Tartarus, which is the place which is burning, where they used to burn the trash in Jerusalem. So it's a picture of where they burn trash, a burning lake of sulfur, uh, weeping and gnashing of teeth, and the word Hades, and usually what does Hades mean? Hell, right? You're like, yeah, you go to Hades. Well, that doesn't really mean that much because for the Greek person, all that meant is where dead people hang out. So, like, when you die, you go down to Hades, and then you have your two drachma coins, and you try and cross over the river. Does this make sense? It should to some degree, but not a whole lot, because it doesn't really make sense. So, we have the idea of dead people hang out there. There's suffering. This was not made for human beings, by the way. It was made for the devil and his angels. And there's all this pain, and it's eternal. This is what we know. So, is there a hell? Yes. Is there clearly a term where you just run into Hades or hell or Sheol that are clearly going to be defined, all these kind of things? No, instead it's a collective idea. That's probably enough time on hell, isn't it? Let's move to heaven. All right, so your body and soul separate. You face immediate judgment. If you're an unbeliever, you go to hell, permanent. If you're a believer, you go to heaven. And the same idea is true of heaven. How does the Bible describe heaven? It says it's a place where there's no weeping, there's no uh, pain, there's no suffering, Christ is going to be our light. It says when you go there, there is no uh, pain and suffering, you're with Christ forever, you're united, and it describes it as a feast, which I think is the best part, isn't it? I mean, could you imagine going to a party and there's no food? And then in heaven, there's no BMI, so you can eat all you want, and everything is great, and you, you eat away, and it's fantastic, you're such a close relationship with everyone there, it says you're not even married in heaven. 
That's how tight it's going to be. And that's the kind of community you're going to have. And you're going to be with God, somehow with God, to be able to celebrate and sing his praises. To me, that sounds cool. And where is this going to be? That's another part. When you think of heaven and you think of hell, where do you usually think it is? This isn't too difficult. Where's heaven? If you were going to point, where would heaven be? And if anyone points at their spouse, I'm going to throw up, okay? <laughs> so heaven is always upright and hell is always below. Do you know where those ideas come from? Well, a couple ideas. We'll first start with hell. Um, remember when Jesus, um, he had he take it, sent the demon out. There's uh, multiple demons inside a guy and he sends them out and he sends them into the pigs, if you know this Bible story. And where do the pigs immediately go? They go kill themselves because demons are destructive. So they, they kill themselves. They go drown the pigs into, um, they drown the pigs into the Sea of Galilee. And where do they go? Down. Which maybe explains a little bit. Remember when Jesus' disciples, before he, there was like the storm coming and Jesus was walking on the water and they all freak out? What do they think Jesus is? A ghost. They say this is not good. Why? Because they're on the water and there was this idea that underneath this is where it's really bad. Does that make some sense? So there's always this idea where bad things are below. This is even, um, uh, J.R. Tolkien recognizes this, where do the trolls hang out? Underground. I mean, everyone knows this. All bad things, if you've seen the movie It and the Crazy Clown, where does the crazy clown hang out? In the sewer system, right? This all makes sense because biblical themes end up in movies all the time. Has anyone seen It? Okay, good. It was on TV once, you know, Stephen King. So bad things are below. Where do we get the idea that good things are up in the air? A couple things. Jesus, when he was transfigured, okay, so he's, in, uh, he's with his disciples, and it says his glory had shown what happened. He floated into the air. He was transfigured into the air. When Jesus ascends into heaven, what happens? So he dies, he rises again, he, his disciples see him, and where does he go? He goes up in the air. And then you read parts in Scripture like this one. For the Lord himself will come down from heaven with a loud command, with the voice of an archangel, and with the trumpet call of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. After that, we who are still alive and are left will be caught up together. That's where the, my laser works, which it never does. Um, caught up is the idea of rap, rapture, rapio. Together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so we'll be with the Lord forever. So where's heaven? Usually we think of it as up somewhere, right? Somewhere in the sky. Even when you're a kid, where do they draw heaven? If they draw like the angels with the halos and they're hanging out, where, are they, where do the angels hang out? On clouds. I mean, this is, these are biblical themes that are somewhat accurate. However, the Bible also tells us that God is going to come and he's going to destroy the earth and build a new heavens and a new earth, a home of righteousness. So does that mean we are going to float up in the clouds? which doesn't actually sound all that cool. If you've ever been in an airplane above and the sun is really bright, and you're like, this does not sound that awesome. So what is God actually saying? Now, here's my opinion. I don't know if God is going to blow up the earth completely and start over brand new. Like if you, um, you've given up on your car in a sense, and you're like, we're going to get a new car. And for some people, that means they're going to blow it up and not most people, okay, south of Colorado, maybe they blow things up, I don't know, but um, some people it means they're going to get rid of it and they're going to brand new car. Some people means that they're going to fix it up so it really works. Is God going to, it's not clear in the Greek, is God going to fix up the earth or is God going to blow it up and make a new one? So we'll just take a poll of hands. Who thinks God is going to blow up the earth? Brand new one? You're kind of a brand new guy? I'm a fix-it guy, so I, I, 
told someone, that's like crack. If you tell me your car's broken or something, I'm like, oh, really? What's wrong? That doesn't mean I can actually fix it, but I mean, I love that idea of fixing things. And what did God do with humanity? This would be, um, this is again my opinion, why I think God's going to fix up the earth we live on, the new home of heavens and new earth. What did God do with humanity? When Adam and Eve fell into sin, did he just obliterate them and say, I'm going to start all over? He talked about it before the flood. But no, God says, I'm going to send a solution. And, and God likes to fix things. Now, this is, again, my opinion. It's not clear in Scripture, but I think God is going to take the planet we have in the new home and, and somehow transform it in a way that is perfect. And I think that sounds pretty cool. So, how far are we at now? Your body and soul separate. We now have talked about heaven, which appears to be, it, it essentially means being with God. And it seems to be in Scripture, we're going to have a new heavens and a new earth. So it's not like we just float in heaven, but somehow have some kind of place to live, if that makes sense. Jesus is making a place for us to live. And now we get to the part where, um, kind of the kicker on the whole deal. Here's a passage that I think is, um, I'll just let you read it. Do you not know that the saints will judge the world and if you are to judge the world, are you not competent to judge trivial cases? We can highlight these. Um, do you not know that we will judge angels? Now just put your brain around that. So when you die, if it's the end of the world, so we, we talked about normal death, and then your body and soul separate, you're in heaven or hell. But on the last day, Jesus is coming with the trumpet call of God, the archangels, and the world is ending and he's taking up all believers to be with him, what is one of the things we're going to do? Can you get your mind around that? Like, actually standing in judgment? Does anyone like to do this? I think the challenge is this. Um, would you like to fire someone, if you work someplace, for being late when you yourself struggle with being late? Or like, it's like me talking to my kids about their bad handwriting. You know, I, just, I never write the note to them, do I? I type it or I, I talk to them because I don't have great handwriting, so it's kind of silly for me to talk to my kids about, like, your handwriting's terrible, right? What is it going to be like when we go up to heaven and God is saying to people eternally, you're going to hell. It says it's it, like the, the angels are going to be suffering like sheep and goats, like a shepherd would. You're going eternally to hell or you're going eternally to heaven. And somehow we're going to be able to do that? Let me tell you two stories. Uh, first one was when I was in college. And uh, a friend of mine, a good friend of mine, had, they had rules at our college. So you're going to be a pastor. Of course, they're going to have good rules, um, pretty strict rules. And the rule was if you have alcohol inside your dorm room, you're kicked out of school. And some of you are nodding like, oh, that makes sense. And some of you are like, wow, that's not state school. Uh, so... <laughs> Uh, so we go to this, and this was the rule. So my friend, I was there at the time. Actually, Amy was in town, so we were dating at the time. Amy and I pretty much dated forever, so we were dating at the time. And um, we weren't around. At, I'm not saying I would have been there. Let's just clarify. So he gets caught, and the dean of students says, we're going to expel you. He sits in his office and says, I'm writing this note. You're going to get kicked out of school. Does that seem a little bit harsh? Some are saying no. I felt it was a little harsh. So I went to go talk, and I pleaded the case to the dean of students. And I'm saying, you know, he gave all these kinds of reasons, and I've known him forever, and all these things, and he changes his mind. Yeah, he changes his mind and says, if it happens again, um, you're gone. So we all celebrate. We're not with alcohol. We all celebrate. We're very excited. And that would be an example where 
I disagreed with the punishment. So is it going to be like in heaven when God is doing this? You're up in heaven and you're saying, you know what? You know, God, I think that's a little harsh right there. I think hell is a little intense for that. Or I'll tell you a second story. Uh, my dad's a teacher, and he teaches physics, taught physics, 45 years at the same high school where I went to high school. And on the final exam, one of the boys, or one of the men, young man, he was 18, a senior physics, had cheated on the test. And I remember coming home for break and talking to my dad, and he was just distraught. I mean, it crushed him that someone would even think about cheating. He said, Jared, you know, he could have failed it, and he would have got a C in the class. Like, why would you do? He was just crushed. So then, I actually knew all these people, and I'm hanging out with them, and they were going on about how my dad, I think my dad failed. The guy got like a D in a course, and they felt like this was ridiculous. Like, why would you do that? But as his son, who had seen the pain it caused my father, recognizing that I thought that was a just punishment, did I agree with my dad? Yeah, it didn't bother me at all. I mean, I'm not saying in that context I stood up and said, well, you know, it is cheating. That's totally legal. He should have failed the whole course. This is the difference. What is the difference between one looking at God when we're up in, uh, caught up in the clouds in a sense, the world is being judged. What is the difference? Are we going to be on the same page as God or are we going to feel like God is being too harsh as he sends people to hell? The reason why we struggle, I think, sometimes with trying to pass judgment on people is because we know our own sins, right? It's hard to get mad at someone who's late if you're late. It's hard to say, how could you have bad thoughts when you know you have bad thoughts? It's hard to condemn someone who's done all these bad things. What does Scripture say? How about you take the plank out of your own eye? But where's the plank when we're caught up with Christ on the last day? Christ has removed it. And by the time you are caught up on that, that last day, uh, God already looks at you as a saint, and he carries you up into heaven because your sins have been take for, taken away. Your sins have been paid for. It's not on some payment plan. Instead, Christ has totally removed this, and, and somehow, it's hard to get your mind around it, you will stand with Christ and be so in line with his will that when he declares his eternal judgment, you're going to say, that makes some sense. Just like it made sense that that boy got a D in the course to me, it's going to make sense when God says, um, eternal damnation, it's going to make sense to you. A couple last things that we hit on the end of the world. Um, we rise from the dead. Uh, so on the last day, this is a little bit different. Christ is going to come again in the clouds. All the dead are going to rise, which is going to be a fascinating event. Uh, the, the trumpets are going. It's somehow it's going to get a lot darker. At least that's what happens in the movies. Like it's really bright out and then it like turns gray or something like that. I don't know if that's true. So Christ is going to be in the clouds. We're going to hear this giant noise. We're going to be caught up with Christ in the clouds. What's the kicker? When is this going to happen? Here's a possibility. Uh, the Mayan calendar says it's going to end. I did some more reading on that. Even the Mayans didn't seem to agree with that. Um, and that would be the last of our comment. The Bible is very clear to say this. This is the last thing we're going to hit on. We don't know when the end of the world is going to come. We have no idea. And Jesus says it's going to be like a thief in the night. What person knows when a thief is going to come? Nobody. Nobody. And I've explained to other people when I was a kid, I used to wake up in the morning because I didn't want the end of the world to come. Because when you're a kid, like, life's great. All you do is watch cartoons and play. So you don't, like, wait till I'm an adult and I have a job, God, and then end the world. That's what I was thinking. So I'd wake up and I'd say, today is the end of the world. And I knew God couldn't end the world because I had just told him the world's going to end. And I knew at that moment when it was going to end. And it worked. <laughs> so, so we're talking about the end of the world. 
We don't know when it is. It says it's going to be like a thief in the night. And mostly what Scripture says is be prepared. The example I give, and some, many of you have heard this already, is when you go on, like, you go on a date and you've got your kids at home and you say, hey, I want your rooms cleaned up before we get back. Now, smart kids say, like, when are you going to get back? Like, you know, like ballpark. Right? Can you give us a call when you're on your way back, you know, so we can welcome you home? I mean, think, that's what smart kids do. Other kids are like, yeah, we'll see you later. And they're like, oh, we don't know. So smart, really smart kid at that point would do what? You don't know when your parents are coming back. You clean your room, right? And then you can enjoy and make, everything's in order and you can enjoy your life. Other kids wait until the lights bounce on the garage. They hear that, or the garage door and they're like, uh-oh. So then they get up there and they do what my son called trail cleaning, which meant he just shoved it into his, uh, into his garage, not his garage, uh, into his closet. That's what he would do. So that's smart kids. Now, in the world, people kind of do the same thing, don't they? The end of the world is coming. Do we have any doubt about that? We don't know when it's coming. And you can do two things. Number one, say, I want to make sure I understand what God expects of me, what God has done for me, and I'm going to enjoy my life. And the peace of knowing when he shows up, uh, we're going to celebrate and be in heaven, and somehow I'm going to judge the angels, I, I can't imagine that, and be with God in eternal bliss. Other people just try to ignore it. And you can do that a thousand ways. The Bible calls it dispensa- uh, uh, dissipation. It's like a final exam. I told you about people I go to school with. I went to school with a guy before finals would go to bed at like 5 p.m. And this was not so he'd get a good night's sleep. He just wanted to take like a nap. And what is he really doing? He's trying to forget about it. My wife's trying to guess who it is. <laughs> That's funny. Uh, other guys would play video games. Now you're never going to send your kids to become pastors. You're like, they allow video games? Um, other guys would play video games. You know, it's like final exam week, and they'd just be playing their video games, or they're watching sports, or they're playing basketball, or they're doing whatever. So there's all these different, some guys um, would go to the bar and hang out and things like that. Um, what are each of these methods trying to do? Forget about the reality that there's a test the next day. Judgment is coming. And the world is, you're not going to have any lack of experience finding people that want to try and forget about what's coming. They can drink alcohol. They can distract themselves with other things. They can just try and enjoy life so much you just want to forget about it. They can do all these things, but what does Christ say? I want you to be ready. You don't have to be scared because I'm taking your sins away and this is a joyful reunion with me. You can be like Simeon, an old man who Jesus, uh, God said, somehow revealed to him that you're going to see the Christ. And Simeon goes to the temple when the Holy Spirit told him, and there he holds Jesus and he sings a song. And he says, uh, my eyes have seen your salvation. Now in peace, Lord, I can depart. I pray as Christ comes again, you, you don't have to be worried. Instead, you can feel with hope-filled joy. I mean, this, in the, the whole scheme of things, this life is just like a little blip because you were made to last for eternity. In eternity, you'll be with Christ, celebrating him, enjoying him, his company, and hopefully a fixed-up earth, as he describes it, with the great company of the heavenly hosts. Amen.